0: Well, it is once again our joy to be open up be able to open up the infallible record of the word of God, and I would invite you to do that right now. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And as many of you know, we have been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew for a couple of years now, and we will make our way through it eventually. We don't want to skip over any of the wonderful treasures that God has in this treasure chest of truth. And this morning we find ourselves in verses 43 through 50, a very fascinating text where the Holy Spirit gives us insight into the dangers of moral reformation, apart from genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will also learn more about the role of Satan and demons in unregenerate yet moral people who wear the mask of hypocrisy. Beginning in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 12, follow along as I read. Now, Jesus says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers for whoever Does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. There is a growing phenomena in contemporary evangelicalism and in religion as a whole in general, where we see a movement to somehow moralize our society, to somehow elect enough conservative politicians that we can get people to finally think biblically. There are enormous efforts being waged to fight a values war in our society, in our culture. You will recall a number of years ago, we had the moral majority that sprung up and Even though it no longer exists, it helped to spawn a number of other organizations similar to them. Movements like Focus on the Family, the Christian Coalition, many other parachurch organizations, all endeavoring to reform our American culture. And likewise, many churches and denominations are constantly engaged in sophisticated methods to raise the moral standards of our country. And, of course, they all claim as their authority the word of God. And then with heated uh, rhetoric and well-organized efforts, they fight against things like abortion and homosexuality and rock music, pornography. The list goes on and on. Prostitution, sex education in schools, whatever it might be. And they try to expose activist judges and elect, as I say, moral politicians, which is considered by many an oxymoron. But be that as it may, there are enormous amounts of dollars being spent to do these things. Yet, despite their best efforts, we see very little positive effect. Why? What's going on? Why isn't God on our side? What do we need to do differently? After all, the Bulgarian Howard Stern is in such demand that he just signed, I. I read a five-year deal with, I believe it's pronounced, Sirius Satellite Radio, which will pay him $500 million over five years. I was also reading that in our American culture, the revenue from, from pornography is larger today than the combined revenues of all professional football, baseball, and basketball franchises. And it exceeds the combined revenues of ABC, CBS and NBC, which would be six point two billion dollars. In fact, child pornography alone generates three billion dollars annually. And yet there's a church on virtually every corner in every city in the United States of America. Perhaps we need more political activism. Perhaps perhaps we need more people to join the religious right. Perhaps churches and parachurch organizations need to adopt what more of what many have been adopting, and that is let's see how much like the world we can become in an effort to win it. Well, obviously that hasn't worked. Well maybe what we need to do is reinvent ministry a little bit more, reinvent our churches and Turn our sanctuaries into theaters and dispense with doctrinal preaching, set aside the word of God, because after all, it's confusing and many people are offended with it. Let's replace preachers with David Letterman. Like talk show hosts and comedians that will casually mention a watered down gospel in the midst of many jokes and focus on how cool it can be to be a Christian. And then to finally find purpose in your life. Maybe we need to have more evangelistic rock concerts for our youth. Let's bait them with rock music, rock and roll, and even put some Christian lyrics in there. And then we can switch them on to faith in Christ. Maybe we need to do more of that. Friends, how can we make sense out of the growing freefall of morality in our country? As well as the growing hatred of Christianity. Well, this text before us today will help us understand this a little bit. And again, before we look into it, may I remind you that and I think all of you would agree with this. In order to find a solution to a problem, the first thing you must do is diagnose what the problem is, right? You don't want to go to a doctor and say, doctor, I hurt. And he says, "Okay, well, good. I'm going to do surgery tomorrow. You know, you you want him to find out what's hurting and why. Well, I would argue that most Christian organizations, most churches, I fear that many pastors, certainly many so-called Christian politicians have not accurately diagnosed the problem in our culture, in our society, and therefore in trying to remedy the moral freefall in America. Contemporary evangelical churches in particular are prescribing aspirin for cancer. What's needed is not more aspirin, but a radical surgery. But I fear that the church has lost its ability to discern and lost its ability to diagnose problems. Because frankly, the problem with our society is that people have hearts that are, as the word of God says, desperately wicked. And therefore, we are in need of a radical change in heart. That only occurs by a supernatural process called regeneration. Bottom line, people need a spiritual heart transplant. That's what is needed. Their relationship with God is is dreadfully in need of repair. The word of God says that they are in enmity with him. They are enemies of God, regardless of how religious and how moral many people might be. Therefore, men will never willingly choose to be obedient to God's standards of righteousness apart from being reconciled to God through faith in Christ and undergoing this heart transplant of regeneration. Now, oh, yes, there are many people that are very moral, they're very kind, and they're very honest, even outstanding citizens. Many of them even adhere to a very strict religious code, a code of ethics, a code of morality like the Pharisees and the scribes that we've been learning about. But, dear friends, if they have never truly been born again, as Jesus says, born again by the Spirit, if they have never been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, if they have never been rightly related to God through faith, their morality is merely an illusion of righteousness, and they stand condemned As enemies of God. And I'm convinced, and I say this with sadness in my heart, that much of what makes up so-called Christianity today are people that are bereft of the power of the spirit of God because they have never been reconciled to God through Christ. I believe that many contemporary Christians, quote unquote, are Christian in name only. They adhere to some strict, perhaps even biblical code of ethics and morality, but have never been truly regenerated. They've never repented of their sins, and therefore they stand condemned as enemies of God, all the while thinking that they are doing his bidding. This is precisely, by the way, the charge that Jesus made against the phony righteousness of the Pharisees. You may recall in Matthew 23, verse 25, he said, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, with this in mind, let's turn our attention to what Jesus says to the to the Pharisees and the scribes that he has just severely castigated for their hypocrisy and for their blasphemy. And as we understand his words, we will also begin to understand better the problem with our so-called Christian nation and God's solution to fix it. Notice in verse forty three. He has a very curious statement that he makes. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Well, what does this mean? Given the context of Jesus scathing denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees in the previous verses, We would understand that what Jesus is saying here is simply this. He's describing a man who was under the control of a demon. And evidently, uh, this demon had ensnared him in some kind of life dominating sin or sins, as the case may be. The scripture doesn't address what they are. But for whatever reason, this man decided on his own, as we're going to see, apart from Christ, to clean up his act. This is reform without Christ. So we have a moral reformation that occurs. By the way, we've all seen this before, haven't we? I have. Maybe somebody, because of fear of disease or rejection from family or friends, or they're afraid that they might lose their job, or they're afraid of imprisonment or whatever, they, they decide through sheer willpower to abandon some wicked kind of habit. Well, as a result, especially in this case, this demon loses a customer, shall we say. He's no longer welcome there, even though the individual has no idea the impact of the demon in his life, as most people don't. So he no longer has a willing host in order to work through. So he leaves. And in verse 43, it says that it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Now, let me say. Biblically, God is largely silent uh, about the character and conduct of demons, and certainly this text is not meant to be a treatise on, on, on demonology. But we do know, as we study the word of God, that demons thrive when they are attached to a willing host, a willing human being. And if they don't have that, many times they will attach themselves to animals. But they dislike being disconnected spirits kind of wandering around out there in the spirit world. After all, it's hard to thwart the purposes of God and to propagate your your evil, diabolical plans by sitting on a rock someplace or sitting on a tree or floating on the water. You want to be inside someone to enjoy uh, exercising your demonic powers because, after all, the demonic evil nature of Satan and demons really find companionship with the wicked nature of human beings. So this particular demon has been, shall we say, unwittingly terminated by a man who has chosen to reform his life. And as a result, this evil spirit is now homeless. He's wandering around in waterless places. By the way, that is a figurative way of expressing a a place of of, of desolation, an uninhabited type of a wasteland. Uh, When you think about this, even human beings cannot survive in an arid desert where there is no water. And this doesn't mean that demons have to have water. But the the figure here is basically saying that he is now a homeless demon in a a barren, desolate type of place. It's a place he doesn't want to be any more than we would want to be out in the middle of a desert with no water. And so he's frustrated with his condition. But as we look at the text, we see that after he wanders around for a while, for whatever reason, he decides to return to his original host. And in verse 44, it says, um, I will return to my house from which I came. It's interesting that the phrase my house is used, implying a confident sense of ownership. I'm going to go back where I belong. I'm going to go back and check it out, see how this guy's doing. So maybe I can advance my evil agenda in his life once again. And the verse goes on. It says, and when he comes, it finds it unoccupied. Now, think about this. He comes back and there's no other demon that had taken up residence while he was gone. And catch this, nor does the Holy Spirit live within him. It's unoccupied. In fact, the house has been swept and put in order. Another way of putting that, the man's cleaned up his act. There's been some moral reformation that has occurred, but we have more fascinating insight here. The Lord goes on and says about the demon. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. The original language gives us the idea that they settle down and make themselves comfortable there. They feel at home there, not just the original demon, but seven others that are even meaner than he was. Well, what's happened? We, we, we've had this moral reform and, and the demon loses his influence. He decides to, to, to leave. He's frustrated. He finally returns. Place is all swept and cleaned up. And he says, my goodness, look at this. And he goes to his buddies and say, Hey guys, come on over here. We've got a great place to work. You see, what's happened here is the man cleaned up his act by his own efforts without a change of heart. His heart is still unregenerate. It is still fallen. The Holy Spirit of God does not live within him. And as a result, he became like the Pharisees, proud of his perceived righteousness, making him utterly blind to the reality of sin that remained in his heart. Now, here is the danger, dear friends, of reformation without Christ. It really produces three things. There's others that we could add to this, and some of these may even overlap. But let me let me give you three things this morning that we see when reformation occurs, when someone chooses to clean up their act on their own, apart from saving faith in Christ. Three things that happens. One, it creates a delusion of spirituality. Secondly, it offers only a temporary restraint from sin and thirdly, it desensitizes hypocrites to demonic influence. I'll read them again. It creates a de- delusion of spirituality. It offers only a temporary restraint from sin. And it desensitizes hypocrites to demonic influence. As in this case, therefore, seven more wicked than the first make themselves at home in this newly renovated sanctuary of hypocrisy where they can go in and they can subtly strengthen the pillars of pride and offer sacrifices on the altar of self-righteousness. Now notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 45. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. In other words, he's saying, you Israelites, with your your self-cleansing, your self-reformations, your your, your self-righteous legalism, You have produced a progressively evil generation. Your hypocrisy, therefore, has blinded you to the demonic invasion that that is now controlling your perceived spirituality. How tragic, but that was a true description of Israel in that day. Let's examine these three dangers that we can glean from this text. Three dangers of reformation without Christ. First of all, it creates a delusion of spirituality. Certainly, the Pharisees and the scribes were perfect illustrations of this. You might remember Jesus' parable in Luke 18, where he speaks about the pharisaical moralist, the legalist who had convinced himself of his own self-righteousness. And in verses 11 and 12 of Luke 18, he arrogantly prays, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And on he goes. You see, his external veneer of religiosity caused him to believe his own press. It's amazing to see how hypocrisy, dear friends, breeds increasingly virulent strains of pride to the point where people cannot even see their own sin. They don't recognize the true condition of their heart. That's why Jesus warned, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. I mean, think about that. Even as the fermentation process of a small amount of yeast upon a a lump of dough, a a, a little piece that's so small that you, you, you can't hardly see it. If you have that in the realm of hypocrisy, you have a metastasizing corruption that will eventually invade every part of a person's being. By the way, I've seen this before. I've seen this in men. Let me give you an example of how it works in just what we would call modern contemporary evangelicalism. I think of a man who had a real problem with alcohol. Along with that, he's chasing women all the time. His third marriage had finally fallen apart. Couldn't hold down a job, struggling with things financially. He has a friend that comes along and says, you know what, son, you need Jesus. Well, okay. So he hears a little bit about uh, a popular church that uh, some others are going to. In fact, thousands are going there. So he thinks, well, you know what? Church can't be all that bad. Christianity can't be all that bad. And his friend invites him to come. So he goes inside to the church and he feels right at home there. They're even playing his kind of music. He looks around. Everybody's laughing, having a good time. He goes over and gets his latte and he sits down with some of his other buddies. He loves the service. The preacher's really funny. They show a large... On a large screen, a movie clip, and it was a scene out of one of his favorite movies, and he hears Jack Nicholson say, you can't handle the truth. And oh, he loved that part. And he begins to think to himself, you know, I like this place. He begins to get caught up in the emotion. He hears a few stories about how if you believe in Jesus, you're going to have purpose in your life. And he thinks, my goodness, I need purpose in my life. My life's going nowhere fast. So. Music kind of tugs at his strings a little bit, and he's invited to come along with others on what's called a spiritual journey. And he thinks, boy, you know, the way my life's going, th- this can't be all that bad. So he decides to participate in this very popular movement and in contemporary evangelicalism. And he is told by the pastor that day and kind of caught his ear that, quote, without knowing your purpose, life will seem tiresome, unfulfilling, uncontrollable the pastor goes on and repeats the positive, but not particularly biblical promise that, quote, knowing the purpose of your life will do the following. It will give your life focus. It will simplify your life, increase motivation in your life and prepare you for eternity. And he thinks, my son's pretty good. I might sign up for this deal like all of the other thousands of people in here. And he's told that. He was planned for God's pleasure. He was formed for God's family. He was created to become like Christ. And that he is to be shaped for serving God and that he's made for a mission. Well, that's interesting. I I, I think I might like to learn more about this. So he decides to participate in some of the small groups that meet in his particular community. Gets to know some of the guys. Goes over to. The group that he chose, which, by the way, was the Harley group, the Bikers for Jesus group, because he loves to ride the Harleys. And he hears more of the same message, a very positive, upbeat type of message. And finally, in one of the meetings, he's told that he really needs to, quote, whisper a little prayer. Quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. And here it is. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. So he does that. The friends pat him on the back and say, welcome to the family of God. And now with all of these new Christian friends, guess what he does? He jettisons all of his old habits. He cleans up his act big time, and he even gets married to a fine Christian woman that he meets in one of the groups. On the outside, everything looks great. On the outside, people say, my, what a change God has wrought within the soul of this man. The only problem is, he didn't come to Christ for forgiveness of sins. He came to Christ to have a more fulfilled life. And there you have it, dear friends. And this scenario happens every day of every week by the thousands. A reformation without Christ creating a delusion of spirituality. The outside of his spiritual house got a facelift, but there's nobody home inside. His life is empty. The Holy Spirit's not there. There was no concept of the depths of his own sinfulness, there was no desperation to, to come to Christ for salvation for sin. There was no understanding of the holiness of God and the laws that he has violated. There was no passion for the glories of the cross. And now, of course, there's no real communion with God. There's no fellowship with God. There's no real joy deep within his soul. There's no hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's no love for the glory of God. There's no sacrificial love in his life. No passion for Christ. And as the months wear on, all that's there is a nagging emptiness down deep within his soul that needs to be dealt with somehow and he doesn't really know what to do. So he does what everybody else does. Goes out and paints the outside of the house more with some more self-exalting religious works. Endeavoring to somehow silence his conscience and convince himself that his spirituality is in fact real when it's not. And once again, dear friends, I fear that what I have just described makes up over half of evangelical Christianity in the United States of America today. And you wonder why we have no impact for the sake of the kingdom in our country. By the way, even with true Christians preaching the true gospel, we are going to be limited in our effectiveness Even as the Lord was in his ministry on earth, we know that for many reasons. There's no magical formula. And the gospel is horribly offensive to the world. Repeatedly in the New Testament, Isaiah is quoted that the gospel and Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You know, friends, because people hate Christ... And let's get outside of the scenario that I just described, because certainly this man would not necessarily say that he hates Christ, even though he doesn't really know who he is. But even many religious people today have no capacity to embrace biblical truth. So to come along and to try to get them to embrace, to live consistently with the glories of the scripture in an effort to somehow bring glory to God in their life. I mean, friends, that's like trying to teach a monkey table manners. I mean, it's just not going to happen. You might get them to hold the fork a little bit, but they're not going to eat with their mouth closed. You know, I mean, it's just not going to happen. And as you read, for example, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, we're told that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised, which means they, na- they have no capacity they are, uh, to, to understand biblical truth. They cannot recognize the facts when they're put before them. And so when we come along with, in many cases, unregenerate people dressed up as Christians, trying to get other unregenerate people to live morally consistent with the principles of the word of God, you end up with chaos like we have in our country. And what happens is the world out there hates Christianity because of it. I was reading one political commentator about this very issue. Here's what he said. Social conservatives have a way of forcing their moral views on other people. They believe that their enlightened viewpoint puts them in a unique position to dictate what is right and wrong for other people. But time and time again, they are revealed to be more depraved and sick than the people they condemn to eternal hell. All the while doing vast harm to American society in order to help maintain the pretense of their holiness, end quote. You know what? In many ways, I have to agree with him. There is a tremendous amount of hypocrisy in the so-called church today. Once again, the reason for that is because there has been reformation without Christ. By the way, the primary fodder for their attacks, I've noticed a really threefold one, certainly a, a staggering ignorance of scripture and of theology. But secondly, and, and they will constantly point this out, they see the enormous differences in what, quote unquote, Christians believe. And they would argue that, therefore, my goodness, this is just all a big myth because nobody can agree on anything. And certainly they have no understanding of what really a Christian is, but Be that as it may. And then the third thing they will always capitalize on is the hypocrisy of many Christian leaders as they expose their lifestyles and so on. And again, I can understand that because there has been too many times reformation without Christ. So you have a with reformation without Christ, you find people having a delusion of spirituality, but secondly, only a temporary restraint from sin. You see, once again, because the original nature has not been changed, because there's still a heart defect in people who have not placed their faith in Christ, there can be no long-lasting change. How long is sheer willpower going to help you suck it up and just not do whatever that life-dominating sin was anymore? How long are you going to do that? By the way, you see that in the hypocrisy of Roman Catholic priests. I mean if you've read anything about the history of Roman Catholicism you will see that for centuries they have been notorious for their immorality been notorious for that but friends we must understand again biblically the unrenewed heart the heart that has not been transformed by the power of Christ is according to Jeremiah 17:9 deceitful and desperately wicked Ecclesiastes 8.11 says that the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. In Ephesians 4.18, the Apostle Paul tells us that their understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. But there's something glorious that occurs when God sheds his grace upon a sinner and when we recognize our sin and we cry out and say, oh, God, I need a new heart. I need to be saved. I need to be born again. When that happens, there is a glorious transformation. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. But if any man is in Christ, he is a new what? A new creature. Well, the old things passed away and behold, the new things come. You begin to love what God loves and hate what he hates because salvation is transformation. We've been, according to Romans six eighteen, freed from the bondage of sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Also, in Romans 6, verse 11, we are told that we can reckon yourselves, therefore, to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, again, when a person is truly born again, there is a radical transformation that occurs in his heart. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness. You see, again, the mere self-cleansing of personal reformation offers no remedy for the condition of the evil heart within. Therefore, there is no power to restrain sin on a long-term basis. There is no understanding, therefore, of truth and how to apply it to your life. No capacity to even see it, much less live it. And by the way, when you are that way, you are also not going to have the ability to articulate the true gospel of Christ. So you end up telling people to whisper a little prayer. That's not true evangelism, dear friends. In fact, what Jesus is saying is that when such external moral reformation takes place like that of the Pharisees, it blinds the hearts of people to the true condition of their sinful heart. It blinds them. And this is why it is so hard, by the way, to preach in our co- in our culture, isn't it? Because people are all convinced that they know Christ. They're convinced that they're good people and on and on it goes. Well, not only does reformation without Christ create the delusion of spirituality, And secondly, a temporary restraint of sin, but it desensitizes hypocrites to demonic influence. This is very important. Now, keep in mind, all false religion is hypocrisy. Pharisaical Judaism was just one form of it. But what you will find is whenever there is reformation without Christ, in other other words, whenever the house is, is unoccupied and it is swept and it is put in order, the religious person... Has now convinced himself or herself that they are now deserving of divine favor. And this, of course, provides the perfect dwelling place for more demonic forces to make themselves at home. That doesn't mean, and I don't want to get off on all of this, but it doesn't mean that now demons kind of run in and they invade and and they're living in there and the person has no control. You will understand if you understand the Bible, that the primary way demons work is through false teaching and so on. We'll look at that some more in a moment. But when people are blind because of their hypocrisy, it can expose them to more demonic influence. By the way, this is what we see in Jesus' parable. In verse 45, the first demon returns. It it takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and they live there and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. You see, what has happened now is he has not only desensitized himself to his true condition, making him now subject to reoccupation by another demon or more demons. But what is worse than that? He is now even more indifferent to the demonic influences in his life. Influences through false teaching and false friends, false churches, whatever it might be. By the way, friends, how else can you explain the inconceivable religious fervor of Islam? And yet people that have no problem murdering innocent people, even innocent children, cutting off heads, blowing themselves up. There's been reformation, but not with Christ By the way, that kind of barbarism that I just mentioned occurs daily in the United States of America in abortion clinics around the country. So Jesus exposes the true state of their spiritual condition. Generations of mindless legalism have have now blinded them to the need for God's mercy and forgiveness. And as I said earlier, legalism and hypocrisy breed even more virulent strains of, of the same with every generation. You see. The children and the children's children of the legalists become even more excessive in their insane attempt to somehow prove their their standing before God and convince themselves that they deserve salvation, that somehow they have become worthy of God's love and even converts of their perverted system immediately take up the very same banners of arrogance and they do so even with with more vigor and more zeal. And they march to the drum of spiritual elitism. That's why in Matthew twenty-three fifteen, Jesus addressed this very issue where he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That is exactly the point. Now, my, uh, allow me to digress for a moment, because many people are confused with. This whole thing of demons and can they indwell Christians and all of this type of thing. There's a lot of people, unfortunately, twisting this and making a lot of money off of offering promises that God never made. Um, Whenever you see powerful demonic influences, dear friends, what you're going to see is evidence that a person is not saved. You see. Christians cannot be indwelt or overpowered or controlled by demons. In fact, whenever you read in the New Testament, you'll find that when when Jesus or other Christians encountered demons, the demons were terrified of that Christian. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lived within them. So you don't need to run around being worried that, you know, you're going to pick up You know, some CD and a demon's going to somehow run through your arm and now he's in there and oh boy, we've got to have an exorcism or whatever. Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are his what? His temple. Second Corinthians six and Colossians one thirteen. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's very clear. First John two thirteen says that we have overcome the evil one. Also in first John four, four, you are from God, little children, and, and and have overcome them, referring to evil spirits and the lies they propagate and so on, because greater is he who he who is in you than he who is in the world. You see, Christ reigns on the throne of a believer's heart and we are kept safe by the power of God. First Peter one, five. In fact, in John, first John five, 18, it says the evil one does not touch him. So don't worry about being somehow controlled by a demon. Satan and demons can torment Christians, but they cannot dominate them. There's no example of that anywhere in Scripture. Certainly they can torment people. We see that they tormented Job, right? You remember that story. There was the sifting of Peter in Luke 22. You remember Paul's thorn in the flesh Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says that it was a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. But friends, neither Satan, and I really want you to hear this, neither Satan nor his minions are able to spatially indwell the habitation of the Spirit of God. It cannot happen. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit would would never cohabit with demons. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 6, Beginning in verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, what harmony has Christ with Belial referring to Satan or, or, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. By the way, as a footnote, and I say this from time to time because it really is a concern that I have. Friends, this is a great text, as well as many others, that should argue against you from ever allowing yourself to be entertained with these horror shows. All right. That that, that is such a that is such a, a terrible thing to do to somehow exalt demonic, wicked types of things in our culture. And frankly, what I believe Satan has done with that is desensitized people to how Satan really works. By emphasizing all of the ridiculous and the bizarre and and even the goofy at times that make you scared, what it does is cause people to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, yeah, all that Satan and demon, that's just a bunch of hokey pokey stuff that Hollywood gives us. But in reality, what they need to understand is where Satan really works is as an angel of light. You want to see Satan? You want to see a real horror show? (laughs) Go to some of these false religions and see what is being taught. That's where the horror show is. See, people don't see that. The way Satan works is through delicious deceptions that are so appealing to people. You want to see a horror show? Have somebody do a documentary on what's happening in some of our colleges and seminaries. What's going on in the church where false religion is being propagated? Go to some of the liberal churches where you see truth sacrificed on the altar of tolerance. Go to churches As I gave an example earlier, where pragmatism is lifted up over precise theology and the glories of the cross and so on. Well, after Jesus blisters them with this castigation, the Holy Spirit provides him with a perfect illustration to contrast a true versus a counterfeit relation to him. And we'll close this out this morning by looking at this. Notice what he says in verse forty six. He says, while he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Well, that's interesting. You see, friends, here is another magnificent demonstration of divine providence at work. Think about this. The Holy Spirit now orchestrates this seemingly innocent scenario. For whatever reason, while Jesus is talking about the demon leaving the the reformation without Christ, while he's doing all of that, all of a sudden his mom and his brothers, his family comes up. Okay, somebody comes in and says, uh, excuse me, Jesus, your your, your family is out here and and, and they're looking for you. So now Jesus uses this situation as an object lesson. Notice verse forty eight. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, obviously, Jesus knew who his mother and brothers were. It wasn't said, well, you know, I don't really know. who." That's not what he's saying. It's a very curious statement. But he really answers it here in verses 49 and 50. It says, "And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, what he's saying is simply this. Yes, the, the, these are my biological the, the family members, my, my mother and my brothers, my earthly family. But those of you who are standing here right now before me, those of you who who are truly disciples of the Son of God, evidenced by your faithful obedience to my Father in heaven, you are my spiritual family. This is what spiritual family is all about. Through faith, you have been united to me And to my father. And your faith is more than mere reformation, as I've been talking about. There's been a transformation. And biblically, we know that when we come to Christ, we are made partakers of the divine nature. We're adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. We become children of God. We're part of the household of God. And on and on it goes. You people who are like that are my family. Friends, I'm sure you would agree that there is no greater joy on earth Than being a part of a family where blood runs thicker than water, where we are loved and united together by the bond of blood and somehow all other relationships, while you may love them, they're they're a bit secondary. But friends, what a joy it is when you meet other Christians, you know, that feeling and immediately there is a kindred spirit. Why? Because we share the same nature as our precious father in heaven. The, the, the blood of his son has not only purchased our adoption, but now it flows through our veins, so to speak. And dear friends, here Jesus is describing what we all long to experience. The joy of sins forgiven and the severing of, of, of a relationship with God has now been restored, not by some phony, uh, short-lived, contrived reformation, but by a genuine uh, change of heart, a genuine transformation that has occurred when we've been reconciled to God, our father, when we've been born again, born of the spirit, we're joint heirs now with Jesus. We're accepted in the beloved, as the scriptures teach. We're children of our heavenly father and loved by him forever. I was talking with someone on the camping trip and and they were talking about how sad it is when you consider adopting a child. They will show you pictures of of many children who have special needs. And certainly there's a little bio there that talks about the special needs of these dear children. And and uh, I'm told that they're much cheaper than the ones that don't have special needs. And I I just couldn't get that off my mind because I think, my, you know, nobody wants those type of children. And yet in reality, all of us have been special needs children that the father looks down and says, I want that one for my own. And in his grace, he comes along and he adopts us as sons through the power of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. And it is with this thought in mind that the inspired half brother of Jesus later wrote in 1 John 3. See how great a love the father has bestowed upon us. That we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because... It did not know him beloved. Now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed in him purifies himself just as he is pure. May I challenge you this morning, dear friends, if your religion is mere reformation without Christ, Your religion is a delusion of spirituality, and you are just kidding yourself. If you're brutally honest, you will also see that you're frustrated with life-dominating sins that you can't seem to overcome. Why? Because you're trying to restrain your flesh by your flesh. And along with that, chances are, certainly not in every case, but chances are, You have become so desensitized to your own true spiritual condition that demonic powers, maybe even right this moment, are doing all they can to silence your conscience as you hear these truths. Demonic powers that speak to you right now in your mind, lies that you have read from other false teachers that would somehow justify your position So you can rationalize your righteousness before God. May I plead with you, be reconciled to God before it is too late. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray together. Father, again, our heart rejoices as we immerse ourselves in these glorious truths. May we apply them to our lives, those of us who know you and love you. As our Savior, we thank you for being a part of the family of God through no merit of our own. Lord, we thank you that the reformation that has occurred in the lives of true believers has indeed been a transformation wrought by the power of the Spirit of God through regeneration. And God, I would pray for that soul that might be here today that maybe has all of the trappings of religiosity, but down deep knows that they truly do not know you as Savior. Oh God, how I pray that you will move upon their hearts with a profound conviction and today they might experience the miracle of the new birth and enjoy all of the blessings you long to give them through Christ. For it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.